Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the mayor of Haldeman is calling for the OPP to enforce injunctions in Caledonia. The Conservative Party of Canada will elect a new leader this weekend. Are you interested? Are you working from home during the pandemic? Is your insurance company covering you? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My parents asked me how I felt about returning to school. I said, please stop. I've only got 20 more days of summer left. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, the back-to-school ads are killing them. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air for week number 23. See ya. Thanks for doing that. Appreciate it. Haircut? We're debating whether Kurt's going to get a haircut before school starts or not. Uh, I'm voting no, but, you know, I'm the low man on the totem pole here. Uh, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. As I mentioned, Will Erskine keeping the home show on the air. Week number 23. Jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com. Uh, the commentary today, available in podcast form, uh, talking about uh, the ongoing uh, the ongoing debates and the ongoing uh, discussions and uh, the fear and the anxiety in and around going back to school and uh, the ongoing arguments between uh, Ontario teachers' unions and the government of the day uh, on this. Uh, Premier Ford just held his press conference and and basically said that uh, he was hoping that uh, the teachers' unions would step up the way other frontline workers have to try to make this work. Here's what the Premier had to say. Look at what the grocery store clerks that were dealing with hundreds of people at the peak, at the peak of this pandemic, they were sitting there checking hundreds of people out. Look at the truck drivers. Look at our great police officers, firefighters, EMS. Uh, Like everyone stepped up. Every single person in this country has stepped up uh, for the call of duty per se. And, you know, now I'm asking the the teachers union. Now it's your turn. Step up. I love our teachers. I've said that over and over again. We have some of the greatest teachers in the country. The teachers union have to come to the the table here and uh, work with us. That's all I'm asking. Uh, feel free to find out more on this and jump into the discussion on the website at 900chml.com and our Facebook and Twitter pages. All right, we talked to uh, uh, Mayor of uh, Haldeman, Ken Hewitt, a, a few days ago in regard to what is going on in Caledonia. Also, uh, as you might remember, we uh, spoke to uh, Chief Cleveland uh, Thomas of the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy Chiefs. He was uh, with us on the air a couple of days ago, and we were discussing this. Obviously, uh, the feds need to come to the table to get these land issues resolved. And also, within the indigenous community, uh, they need to somehow come together and unite as a voice and decide what they want, because there's obviously differences between the hereditary chiefs and the elected band council. Uh, Here's what Chief Cleveland Thomas had to say on the show the other day in regard to this divisiveness. Uh, It's a lot of internal issues there. Um, And I think that there is, and we have talked about on our side, to to set all those things aside and and sit down with the the band to talk about 
um, talk about this specific issue and how um, they made uh, a deal with the developer so that a lot of people don't feel was supported by the community. And so we're still discussing whether on the hereditary chief side, um, if that can happen and when, and when that would happen as well. All right, let's bring in Mayor of Haldeman, Ken Hewitt, and get an update on all of this. Ken, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. And as you said, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole as well. <laughs> I hear you here. Uh, so, uh, again, give us an update uh, where we are. Uh, as I mentioned, and you heard the clip, we spoke with uh, Chief Cleveland Thomas the other day. I believe that was the day that uh, uh, allegedly someone set fire to uh, elected band council chief Mark Hill's home. Uh, the chief even spoke uh, about that, saying that he uh, denounced the violence and such. But uh, give us a bit of an update on where we are, and as mayor, where you see this going. Well, it's uh, you know, it's it's a, just it's frustrating, Scott. It uh, you know, it's very clear that uh, there's a lot of divisiveness uh, on the territory, and you know, just uh, reports that we have been received from uh, from those involved that. Uh, at the Onondaga's chiefs were down uh, with some clan mothers to to tell the uh, those on the site and on the streets that the times come to an end and that they need to remove themselves. So I think there's just as much division with the Confederacy and the Band Council as there is within the Confederacy, and and, and it goes even further and further. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of issues that uh, are there, and unfortunately, those issues are are, are at the expense of uh, many homeowners or or new homeowners that want to be homeowners. So uh, do you get the feeling that any of this is moving forward? It seems at times, uh, and, you know, we can all pick the events where these discussions seem to be propelled forward. Do you get the feeling that this is moving forward or going around in circles? This is just going around in circles, Scott. It's, uh, you know, they've been stick handling. The OPP have been stick handling with uh, with those involved uh, back and forth. Uh, we'll promise you this. We'll do this. We won't do this. We won't do that. And it just goes around in circles. At the end of the day, there has been a settlement agreement with the band council. Whether they like it or not, they need to take it up on the territory with them. The builder has followed the protocol that was uh, designed uh, to to meet uh, a way to accommodate and be respectful to them on Six Nations. There's still, as you said, you know, when I've said it, there's a valid claim that's still out there that still will reward them in some form of dollars and or or property. Uh, But that's not going to be third party owned land. And and that's what we're dealing with. If this was an issue, why, why wasn't it an issue when the farmer was farming the land 25 years ago? only an issue now because there's a developer there today do you get the feeling that the yardsticks keep moving here i mean uh you know a lot was supposedly learned from douglas creek as you said a more protocol was put in place to keep everybody on the same page uh but do the yardsticks keep moving here yeah it's uh you know i, I i'm putting a lot of faith in certainly our provincial government and the comments have been made uh, i'm putting a lot of faith in our courts uh, and in the injunctions, and uh, and I expect that uh, you know those that are capable of, of of protecting the sanctity of what it is that controls and manages society and that rule of law is is going to happen. And you know we we can't continue to go around in circles like we have. Uh, you know it, it just it you you can't have investment within the communities, investment outside of the communities, with this hanging over people's heads. 
Um, do is it just as much an issue that the feds need to come and resolve these land issues as it is the uh, indigenous community needs to speak with one voice or find some way to unite on this? Well, you've hit it right on the nose that uh, it's it's exactly that the feds need to expedite uh, through the court system a way to resolve these claims once and for all, and uh, and and First Nations uh, certainly need to come together with. Uh, an acceptable way of governance that uh, that will meet their needs uh, as well. And, and, you know, at the same time, you can't continue to hold progress and, and everybody else in the surrounding areas ransom, you know, until those parties can find a way to, to you know, to work together. Um, is there any sort of, is there anything to lead you to believe that, uh, the, con- the, the Confederacy chiefs and the elected band council are coming closer together on any of this? I, I don't know how, Scott. I mean, you, you've got a legal binding agreement signed by the previous chief, uh, with the developer. They've accepted land, they've accepted money, and now you have, members of the confederacy saying well we don't like that deal so i i i don't know how you can assume that that's going to work coming together without at the very least taking one step and and honoring a legal agreement that has been signed and, and honoring or respecting the fact that they've handed over land they've handed over cash already and out of respect for that agreement this is perhaps a question i should have asked uh, chief cleveland thomas but um, are they aware that the gap uh, that exists here, uh, not only with the feds, but within the division, within the community, that is just as great. That is as big a problem here. That, and, and, I, and I guess I did express this to, to the chief that, you know, until that gets done, it's going to be very difficult for the federal government or any government to resolve land claims because if there can't be a, if there can't if there can't be a common uh, solution here, uh, even when something is worked out later on, it won't be it won't be acceptable to somebody else. So do, do, do both these parties realize that they are as big as an obstacle to finding a solution as the feds are? Well, it's a good point. I think uh, from what I heard from your clip before, uh, you know, whether it's the conservatives or the liberals that are in, it's 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 the democracy that exists. And we don't like always what the liberals say. Uh, but if they're in power and majority power, the decision they make carries the vote. If the Confederacy uh, is the voice that's going to speak for six nations, then then put that form of governance forward. And, and that becomes you know, the governance that, that we'll support and, and work with. If it's band council, then it's that band council. But we can't keep kicking this back and forth as who represents who and who makes what decisions. It just doesn't work, and, and, and it is a big gap between everybody. Um, have you heard from the feds on any of this? Where are, uh, have they been up to, have they been brought up to date on where this is right now? Well, it's, uh, I, I think they're too busy trying to figure out how to get back to work in Ottawa, as you know, they've prorogued. And, and so frustratingly, we haven't heard, haven't heard from anybody from the federal government, haven't heard from anyone on staff, uh, whether it, uh, it, it's in the uh, Carolyn Bennett's uh, uh, ministry, but uh, we, not a thing, which, which frustrates us to no end.
Uh, what more do we know about uh, the fire that, and again, this happened uh, the same morning that we were talking to Chief Cleveland Thomas, and not much was known then. Uh, he did denounce the violence uh, on the show when, when he talked about that. But, but again, is this, is the, is this supposedly putting chief, uh, pressure on, on Chief Mark Hill? What's the message here? Well, it's, I, I, I really don't know, Scott. I, I know just from you know the reports on uh, on the news that uh, fire marshal's report does suggest arson, uh, which is sad. Uh, you know, I feel for Mark and his family, and uh, and our hearts and prayers certainly have gone out to him. Uh, we don't want to see any of that happening, uh, regardless of you know what your beliefs or or, or what side of the uh, argument you are on this, but. Uh, uh, what what is to become of that? I, I, I obviously I can't comment. I know that it's being investigated and uh, and hope that those perpetrators uh, you know get uh, charged with the full extent of the law. Uh, clearly, that does display the tension uh, within the indigenous community of what those decisions are, whether it's it to go through with these developments or not to go with re- through these developments. And and again, I will say again that to me that is as big a problem uh, preventing the feds. Uh, from coming to the table and finding a solution this is not a new problem this is the reason this is this problem has kept on for so many years in 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 a majority i would say of these situations um is there any way is there anything more you can do or you know within your jurisdiction within your power to try to bring these two sides together within the indigenous community because clearly there is a lot of tension within the indigenous community about who is leading and how the community should move forward that's a difficult one i i think that uh you know, there's a willingness from from our part to to want to participate. Uh, the challenge is is that uh, there's a lot of deep rooted history out there on on Six Nations, and 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 I think that as an outsider uh, trying to bring um, you know a, a, a perspective from our end to to help facilitate how they bring apart or bring a, upon a way of governance is a challenge, and ultimately it's something I think they have to resolve uh, within. But at the same time, uh, you know, we, we have to continue to to show progress and, and, and show show the kind of growth that supports our community and, and surrounding communities. And, and, uh, and, and we can't be continued uh, to help be held ransom uh, when there's disruption within themselves on the, on the territory. What do you see happening next as, as we head into another weekend? Ken, where do you see this going? Well, I, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been in contact with the OPP uh, on a regular basis, and, and, and the hope is that uh, between uh, the, the, the liaison team and, and, uh, and those members of Six Nations, uh, as well as the, uh, the people that are on the site, the protesters, finding an amicable way to, to, to you know, to put an end to this uh, but, uh, you know, there is no solution with respect to, you know, one road, one rail line or, or, or this blockade or that blockade. The only solution is, is everything. And, uh, and, and getting back to, you know, putting this argument in, in a boardroom uh, and bringing the decision makers into a situation where we can actually start moving the sticks forward because we haven't. And, and, and when I say we, I'm not, I'm not an active participant in that. But we as a country and, uh, and those uh, on Six Nations have not moved those sticks forward or taken really an active position to move them forward. 
And nobody seems to be taking responsibility for those that are either occupying the land or creating um, some sort of injustice, whether it's a, a blockage or whether it's, you know, burning of somebody's home. Uh, you know, everybody, ho- both sides have said to me uh, or have said in some form, uh, uh, Chief Thomas, obviously directly to us, that, you know, they're trying to find a, a solution. But do these people actually have control over what is going on within this community because otherwise it seems both sides want this to stop yet it keeps going on well that's a good question because uh that's what i hear as well scott that uh you know the the majority uh of people on six nations don't uh don't subscribe to this kind of protest uh any more than the people outside of six nations and so uh you know where are we with it and and you know we continue to to say we don't like it, uh, but when we speak out against it, uh, it, 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 you know, it has a, a negative uh, effect, and, and and that has to stop. I mean, it, it, we have an injunction. The idea of using an injunction to remove people is the last resort. It's a, it's not how we want to see uh, things moving forward. Uh, but uh, ultimately, that is uh, the position that uh, the OPP and 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 everybody's being forced to 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 play. Uh, Ken Hewitt has been with us. Marib Haldeman, Ken, uh, good luck as you head into another weekend and uh, keep us abreast of what's going on. Thanks for the time. Be well. Yep. Thanks, Scott, for having me. All right. That is Ken Hewitt, the mayor of Haldeman. Of course, uh, the blockades continue in uh, Caledonia of the uh, occupied uh, development land, whatever we you know you want to call it. But again, two very serious problems here. Number one, uh, the feds uh, slow to resolve these land claim issues through the courts. And number two, uh, there there seems to be a lack of a unifying voice within the indigenous community. We've seen this with pipelines. We've seen this with developments. Uh, you know, it, it, this has to be resolved. And unfortunately, I don't see a way of the land claim issue being resolved until uh, there can be some sort of consistency or democracy uh, within the indigenous community. Because as soon as a decision is made, uh, and then sometime later, someone speaks out and says, well, no, I didn't agree with that. So, uh, again, I, I honestly think that this is why this problem has been going on for, for, for decades, for, for centuries in some cases. And uh, until we come to some sort of agreement on how to move forward uh, with some sort of common voice, how could this possibly be settled? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots going on in, cl- in the political world, including, which is sort of lost in the sauce, the, the uh, search for a new com- uh, conservative leader. That will come to a head uh, on Sunday. Here's what Abigail Beeman from Global News had to say. Obviously, a lot will change in a week after they pick their new leader on Sunday. But will they be ready or interested in going to an election as as soon as uh, the end of September? I think time will tell there, and it's too early to say. The NDP certainly have not come out in any strong form talking about an election. They say that they're going to weigh their options and see what's put forward. And actually, to that end, uh, the Bloc put out a statement the day of the prorogation saying that while they probably aren't going to like the throne speech, they're going to wait and see and hear what the Liberals propose before they make any decision. 
Abigail Beeman uh, talking about uh, what happens uh, come September 23rd once the government regroups from prorogation, reads the throne speech, and either the opposition, including the new conservative leader, votes for it or they don't vote for it. And if they don't, that, of course, throws us into the midst of a federal election during a pandemic. Uh, many questioning, of course, the Prime Minister's reason for doing all of this. Uh, everybody agrees a, a reset is needed, but during September, when all of the emergency uh, measures come to an end at the end of August and kids going back to school, it just seems that uh, politics has gotten in the way of uh, the country's needs. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicate columnist, uh, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I hope you are too, Scott. I'm fine. Uh, you know, lots going on, obviously, and we'll try to get to as much of this as we possibly can. But getting back sure. to the conservative leadership race, which comes to a head on uh, Sunday, yeah. should we be hearing more about this, or is this pretty much inside politics for the party? Well, I, I, you know, a lot of people have been saying that. I, I don't think it's been completely dormant, the amount of discussion, and not, not just because you and I are talking about it right now. But look, there's a lot of important issues that are going on right now, especially Canada, the We Charity scandal, and the world via COVID-19. So unfortunately, the Tory leadership race, which is still important and is still being discussed, has taken a backseat to other issues. But I think that once a leader is selected on Sunday, that will change things quite a bit. So uh, is this a situation where everyone's waiting until the leader is actually elected before a stance is taken or before we hear more about all of this? Uh, or again, has uh, this just been lost in the sauce of so many other things going on? If there, if there wasn't a pandemic, uh, if there wasn't a wee scandal going on, would we be following this race more? Yeah, it would be a top story. I don't think there's any question of it. So I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are just waiting to see who is chosen amongst the two top leadership candidates, which are Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, or if things break down in kind of a strange fashion, there's a bit of an upset, Leslin Lewis, whether when one of the three of them is finally declared as the leader, there will then be official platforms, official policies, and other things carried forward. It doesn't, you know, obviously the, the Conservative Party has still initiated things, put out press releases and other things, related to the now outgoing leader, Andrew Scheer. I mean, the, the party doesn't stop until that point in time. But for a formal or permanent direction for the party, you have to wait till there's a leader in place before you can do it, because everything else would just be chatter at this point. Uh, reports this morning, McKay has raised the most money. Is that a determining factor? Not necessarily, because he had raised an enormous amount in the first quarter of fundraising. In fact, if you look at the second quarter of fundraising, which naturally the McKay campaign doesn't go near, um, you can see that both Leslin Lewis and Aaron O'Toole made huge gains that way. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, although I'm not sitting in front of it right now, Scott, I think Leslin Lewis edged ahead of everyone in terms of private donations for Q2. So, yes, it's impressive that the McKay campaign raised as much as they did, but a lot of it was done during Q1, which makes you wonder whether it hit some sort of a tipping point and started to plummet, or it just continued to go on. But because there was such an outburst in Q1, the fact that it dropped off in Q2 means that the overall number, while impressive, wasn't quite as high as it could have been. Uh, because McKay has raised the most so far, are we to assume he is the favorite? No. 
It doesn't necessarily work that way. If you look at history and you look at a lot of different leadership campaigns, you'll see that a lot of people who are either endorsed by their caucus or endorsed by fundraisers don't necessarily come out ahead. I mean, the, the classic example that we can use, is I'm just sort of thinking of one, look at the U.S., for example. When Donald Trump won in 2016, remember, he didn't have the biggest war chest. That was actually Jeb Bush, who in the end didn't even finish off the final two, the final mm. three, or even the final five candidates. So raising money is important, and it's important, especially if you become the leader, because you need to do it. It's a skill. But to raise the most amount of money during the leadership campaign and then assuming that that's the person who's ahead, it doesn't necessarily jive. So what can we expect this weekend? I mean, uh, could, could I be calling you on Monday and, and was both sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, how did this happen? Yeah, it's possible. It's only possible because I think it's fair to say that the traditional modes of thinking or the traditional models that we've used for politics, not only in this country but other countries, doesn't necessarily hold water today. The average voter, the average grassroots supporter, whatnot, thinks on a very different plane than, frankly, I've been involved with it for about two-thirds of my life. I think it's very different now, or it's been certainly becoming a lot different the past two to three years than it was the first, let's say, to be nice, 27 or so years. Because people are just looking at things very differently. They still have the same concerns. You know, they're worried about taxes, the size of government, their families, etc. Those things remain consistent. But there's not this necessarily this fascination or interest with career politicians. There's obviously a, a lot of places now or a lot of people now will look towards other types of factors, you know, uh, personal experience, business experience, private experience, etc. Or if there's a whole range of experienced candidates ru- running against one another in a leadership campaign, they may ultimately choose somebody who goes off the beaten path a little bit, comes up with unique, radical, intriguing ideas that could motivate voters at a f- in a future election. That could also change things as well. So while I certainly believe that either Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole will end up the leader of this party, I think that because there is not necessarily a volatility, but a, a changing attitude the way, in this case, grassroots supporters who are Tories are looking at things, it wouldn't stun me if everything broke down the way it did. They went through a couple, you know, not just one ballot, but two or three ballots, and somehow or other, someone like a Leslin Lewis ends up winning. I don't see it happening. As you know, I've already endorsed Aaron O'Toole as the next Tory leader, and that's who I'm standing with. But at the same time, you know, you can't predict things. It's fun to do it. It's enjoyable to do it. God knows I'm asked to do it a lot by you and others, but unfortunately, we, we can't read the minds of every voter. It's absolutely impossible. So I'm going to make you. I'm going to ask you to make another prediction on that note, sure. Michael. Uh, September 23rd, obviously, uh, throne speech. Yep. Uh, the prime minister is obviously playing a, a big card here, a big hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, on September 23rd, he's going to read a speech, and all the opposition is either going to jump on board. Or they're going to trigger an election. Pierre Polyev has already said we're not triggering triggering an election when he wants us to. We're going mm-hmm. to trigger an election when all the information gets out, and that won't be by September twenty third. Right. So, what is you know whether the the leader is is one person or another, uh, in regard to the conservatives, uh, what is their plan? What do you think their plan will be uh, the day after or on September twenty fourth? when you've got to digest all of this, because the government is putting an awful lot of 
uh, of faith in this throne speech on September 23rd, no? Yeah, they are, absolutely. I mean, they're trying to replicate what Stephen Harper did after he prorogued Parliament in 2008. They're sort of hoping that as people have had time to mull things over, that in the end, any sort of, say, a coup d'etat that may take place, or the fact that the opposition parties are just frustrated with everything they see, they're still hoping, this being the Trudeau Liberals, that everything will simmer down in their mind, that people will be focused on other things, COVID-19 and otherwise, and they won't be paying as much attention to the weed charity, Justin Trudeau's foibles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they'll just let it go. Now, in fairness, and I think Abigail Binman actually brought this forward, which is correct, we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of parties, including the opposition parties on the left, who are really the key to bringing down this government, it has nothing to do with the Tories. It has everything to do with whether the Bloc Québécois and NDP both decide not to back or support Justin Trudeau. He has a minority government. He needs one or both of those parties to move forward. You only really need one party, but obviously if you want to put legislation forward, it's nice to have the backing of more than one party. The NDP right now is sort of musing back and forth. Jagmeet Singh was on with um, with Evan Solomon recently on CTV and was sort of suggesting yeah. that he's looking for you know more government spending and other things, which seems to be, at least in my interpretation, that he is he may be displeased with what he's seeing behind the scenes, and privately he may feel that Trudeau, you know, has just been operating in a terribly foolish and unprincipled manner. But if he gets a lot of what he wants, Scott, he may actually decide to back this government. I think it would be a bad strategy on their part, but it's their call to make. So right now I think everyone's going to be digesting the 5,000 or so pages that were recently released. The Tories, the Bloc Québécois, NDP, uh, Greens and others are obviously just going to decide what their strategy has to be going forward. But it wouldn't shock me if Trudeau survived a bit longer past September 23rd. I don't know if the throne speech will necessarily bring him down. It should, but that's a completely different matter. Uh, and obviously timing, as you said, has a, has a, a great deal to do with this. The opposition at this point, even though the Conservatives don't have a leader and the NDP aren't in the position money-wise to have an election, they must be strategizing backroom, trying to predict what is going to be in this throne speech and have a couple of options ready, to, no matter what falls. Oh, absolutely. They have to. There's no question of that. You know, a lot of people focus on the fact that the NDP is pretty much broke at this stage, which I know they like to deny it. They are. They virtually have no money in their coffers whatsoever. They couldn't run a campaign if they held out cups right now and had little monkeys dancing around with organs. It, it, you know, the organ machines. It would not work at this stage. They need so much money to run a campaign. However, the New Democrats also know that with whatever little they have, they will be able to find people who will at least support them, maybe on a riding-per-riding basis, where they could obviously have a campaign if they decide to bring the government down. As for the Tories, they will have a leader in a few days' time. So that principle or that wild card will be out of the mix. So whoever becomes leader, as I said, it's either most likely going to become McKay or O'Toole, one of those two gentlemen will make a decision in terms of what the strategy should be, what the Tories should prepare for when Parliament reconvenes on September 23rd, or more specifically September 24th, if you'd like. And I think for all the political parties involved, yes, they have to have not just one political strategy, but several in mind. But again, that's why you have political staffers, spin doctors and others. That's their job. That's what they're hired for. That's why they're paid money to think of these things and consider all the various options 
and plan for them. Hmm. All right, new uh, information coming out of the U.S. Steve Bannon up on uh, charges uh, in regard, fraud charges in regard to collecting money for a wall between Mexico and the United States. Your thoughts on how uh, this is all transpiring? Still too early for me to say one way or the other, because obviously the indictment just came down a few hours ago. I mean, on the surface, it doesn't look good. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, You know, the accusation or the the allegation that they pocketed money, that being Steve Bannon and several other people who were linked with this privately funded campaign, which obviously dealt with the wall with Mexico, among other things. Um, it, look, it, the thing that obviously looks the worst, I mean, for Bannon, obviously, and his, co- and his cohorts, the fact that they could possibly face in jail time is horrific, and they obviously have to deal with their legal counsel in that matter. You know, President Donald Trump was asked about it, at a presser just earlier this morning, and naturally he said how sad it was and the fact that he never agreed with their program in the first place or, or idea in the first place because it was privately funded and he thought that was the wrong thing to do. I do vaguely remember him saying something like that, Scott, so I don't think it's a fabrication. I think he is telling the truth on that. And in fact, anything building a wall with any country should be a public initiative if it ever occurs. It shouldn't be a private initiative or a triple P if you want. Um, so I think for Trump, though, in the White House, it's just another mark against somebody who has worked for them. You know, they've had a fair amount of indictments, arrests, you know, with the exception of Roger Stone, who was obviously, you know, who no longer faces any charge because President Trump has relieved him of that component. Um, there's just a lot of things that are twisting in the wind, so to speak, with the Trump administration. It doesn't mean that every single person who works in a presidential administration is completely clean. We've had enormous examples throughout history, not just including people like Richard Nixon and others where this has happened, but it's hard when you're still the sitting president and this just seems to happen on a regular basis. I think it's about seven or eight people now in total who have worked in the Trump White House at one point or time or another during the nearly four years that Trump has been in power. It just never looks good. It's not something you can necessarily brush away. So we'll see what happens with Bannon. I mean, it's still far too early to say. For all I know, these charges could be nothing. They could be dropped very quickly. But again, it's not something that any political administration or any politician wants to deal with. All right. Uh, before we let you go, got a couple of minutes left here. Ask you your, impre- your impression of what you're seeing at uh, the Democratic National Convention. Uh, everyone speaking. Uh, Biden uh, to speak tonight. Uh, and will this tell us anything about what we might see with the Republican convention coming up, which obviously uh, all this has been done virtually? Your thoughts? Yeah, well, the Republican convention will also be done virtually for the most part, so we'll see what they choose to do. Yeah, I mean, I've I've gone through and sat through the Democratic convention, mostly because I'm just a political junkie. I don't really, you know, from a partisan point of view, I really don't care what they have to say, and I find a lot of their ideas to be completely way off in left field that I just can't even really focus on. But in the end, ultimately, I think what has stood out for them, if I want to be fair about it, they've had a number of speeches that obviously have attracted some attention. Barack Obama's speech definitely attracted attention. Bill Clinton's speech definitely attracted some attention. Um, Many of their main or star speakers or keynote speakers, if you wish, have done very well. Also as well, to be fair, Michelle Obama and Jill Biden, as in Jill, the wife of Joe Biden, yeah. they have both they both performed 
quite well when you consider the fact that in Michelle Obama's case, she admitted right there she hates politics. That's why she's never run. She has never cared to be a politician. Being a spouse of a politician doesn't mean you're going to actually do it, too. And Jill Biden, from what I understand over the time, these are just based on news reports, has never enjoyed public speaking and gets frightened to some degree to do this. So, look, if you're going to put all that together, to their credit, they have brought forward some good speakers who have presented material that appeals to the politically converted, those who are their you know, their grassroots supporters, party members, or loyal Democrats. For them, it works perfectly well. The Republicans will do the same thing with their loyal supporters, fundraisers, etc. That's all to be expected. But do we think that there's going to be a telling sign from a Democratic convention to a Republican convention? I think the only thing that the Republicans may do that's similar to the Democrats, many Democrats, including Barack Obama last night, went very, very hard on President Donald Trump watch the Republicans to do the same thing to Joe Biden. All right, Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, as we jump back and forth across the border talking politics. Michael, as always, love to do so. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter over the course of uh, 23 weeks as we are all basically uh, thrown into a, a new way of doing things. Uh, a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, you know, with, especially those in and around the hospitality industry. I mean, this uh, pandemic has virtually affected everybody and has triggered uh, what will be a new world, even when a vaccination is available for COVID-19. Uh, a lot of people, when are we getting back to normal? I don't think you will ever get back to the way we did things uh, before COVID-19. We're in a new world either way, even with a vaccination. And one of those situations, one of those uh, accommodations, I guess, was made uh, that was made was working from home. I believe the, the numbers are as high as 30 percent of people who uh, had the ability to work for uh, from home are continuing to do that in order to keep the uh, the curve suppressed and, and, and keep people safe. But how does that change things working from home? Obviously, the dog, uh, the kids, uh, those are all uh, things that we've had to deal with. Uh, Internet issues, uh, everybody being in the same space for an extended period of time. Things we've all had to adapt to uh, during a COVID-19 pandemic. So in regard to working from home, and some are saying that they will continue to do this. Some companies are saying, hey, this is... Uh, the new norm for us. So what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for you, the homeowner, or you, the person that's renting the apartment, or or what have you? Uh, is there anything you need to know in regard to uh, home insurance? Are you having clients come into your home? Are you having meetings with people in your home? Or is everything done virtually? Uh, and again, what is the liability? Uh, let's bring in Anne-Marie Thomas, insurance expert, spokesperson with insurancehotline.com, and is with us now. Anne-Marie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell everybody what the insurance hotline is. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Insurancehotline.com is an insurance rates comparison website, which is absolutely perfect. For, for, you know, this time in our lives when we're all trying to save money anywhere we can. Uh, so you simply go onto the site and enter, you know, your information. It might take, you know, between five and seven minutes and we'll give you uh, the 
the lowest insurance quotes we can find for your profile for both home and auto. So obviously, every or a lot of people are working from home. Uh, I've heard numbers as high as thirty percent, and and a lot of companies talking about leaving this way, uh, leaving it this way. We certainly can think how the rippling effect will be felt in in various industries. This virtually affects everyone. Uh, what are the concerns, or what should be the concerns of those that are working from home? So uh, a couple of things to think about when you're working from home. Uh, you know, if you think about your insurance policy as, um, as, a, as a contract that you have made with the insurance company, and that contract is set up for your personal home, for personal reasons, with personal use of your home, right? So insurance companies and their actuaries build insurance premiums based on that use, Right. So, you know, your regular family having some guests over every now and then for dinner and drinks. And, you know, so that liability already pre-exists in the home home insurance or renter's insurance that you pay for. When it comes to uh, uh, working from home, if you are having potentially clients coming in and out of your of your home, if you're having coworkers coming in and out for meetings, depending on the frequency, that could be an increased liability exposure for your insurance company. Right? So, so, you can, uh, go, so ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, so if you you can imagine, it would get into a gray area if you, as a, as a, you know, a working person, has someone come to your home and, you know, something happens and they break an arm, they sue you, they sue their employer, they sue your insurance company, you know, but who pays? So it's always good to find out from your insurance company what, if any, changes need to be made to your policy as a result of you working from home, because everyone's situation is different and not all home insurance policies are the same. So would this pretty much mostly be, Anne-Marie, around people or clients, as you said, coming in and out of the home, uh, uh, changing the complexion of the home inside? Would most of the concern be centered around that? It could be, yes. There is also um, a potential concern of... uh, business property. So what, if any, property have you taken from your workplace and brought to your home, but the the property actually belongs to your employer? For example, did you bring home some expensive, you know, computer equipment in order to do your job that cost thousands of dollars? Where would that be covered under your home insurance policy? So because you don't own it, it's uh, it's a gray area, right? So is it covered under your insurance policy at home or is it covered under your employer's insurance policy at home? So it's worth it to take uh, just a little bit of time and double check these things. Make sure that any property you have from the office is protected because, you know, you don't want to be on the hook for thousands of dollars of computer equipment or, you know, samples or whatever it is that you may have brought home. You bring a very valid point up here, uh, specifically in regard to equipment, uh, computer equipment, laptops, whatever. 
Um, you know, and again, I, I've got a company-issued laptop in front of me right now. If someone breaks into my home and steals this laptop, is it my insurance company that's liable for that, or is that the company's? Or again, would everybody be different? But generally, what would be the rule? So typically, uh, if it was in your home, and depending on the um, you know the dollar value, a lot of insurance policies have a limit on what they will pay for equipment used for business. And and, that, and very often it's around a cap of $5,000. So what could happen if that, if that company laptop is stolen from your home, it's possible that it could be covered under your personal insurance because it was in your possession at that time. As long as it falls within that potential cap, um, if, however, you had it outside of your office, so if you left it in your car and jumped into Starbucks to grab coffee uh, and someone broke into your car and stole it, it may not be covered on your home insurance policy because it, it was in your possession, but it wasn't in your home. So it's always good to double check uh, with your personal insurance provider what scenarios are covered and where are any gaps and how can you fill them? Uh, you know, I can certainly be, see being issues with people conducting business and having clients or, or guests or whatever in and out of the home. But what for, what about the average person that's basically in front of a computer and doing their work that way? Are, are there concerns there? You talked about uh, equipment, perhaps, and the liability there. Uh, but if, if you're home and you're doing a straightforward thing over a, over a computer, what are some of the things that homeowners should be concerned about? Uh, so you just want to make sure that uh, your insurance uh, company is aware that you are now potentially working from home for an extended basis, and you want to make sure that there's no time limit or any any kinds of restrictions on working out working within your home. But very often, uh, you can have a you know. A, a business extension added to your policy and it might cost you know 20 or 25 dollars a year so you know the little bit if there is any exposure the little bit of premium that you might have to pay could very easily offset any exposure that you have can you see home insurance rates going up because people are home more so that's a great question so insurance companies the, the you know uh, premiums are based on exposures right so uh, we're we're home more we're cooking more we're doing everything more at home so maybe the risk for fire has gone up but the risk for burglary and damage from a leaky faucet or those kinds mm -hmm. of things may have gone down because you know your home you're not likely to be broken into you know while you're while you're at home. If something starts to leak in your house, you can get to it quicker than if it were to be leaking all day while you were at work. So the different exposures could sort of offset themselves. So I don't know that there would be premium increases as a result of working from home, as I say, because the exposures have shifted. 
um, it doesn't mean one is worse or one is better. It's just shifted. So I, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about uh, insurance companies increasing their premiums for that. If premiums are going to be increasing on home just by virtue of uh, a lot of the climate changes that are affecting home right, flood right. and that mm. sort of thing. So um, it's obviously going to take a while for everyone, including insurance companies, to try to figure out what this is going to look like. Uh, Is this something that's on insurance companies' radar as they try to prepare for a post-COVID-19 world? I'm sure that it is. Uh, You know, I know that uh, a, a lot of insurance companies are looking at the way that they do business. You know, do we do business more virtually? What what should our policies look like? Should we be changing, you know, some of the wordings in our policies to include more working from home? There's going to be lots of things that insurance companies are looking at with respect to this pandemic and, you know, the new normal, as it were. What about car insurance? Because obviously, if you're staying home, you're not taking your car to work every day. You become more of an occasional driver than anything. Uh, I got a colleague that had a funny saying, you know, I'm getting two months per tank as far as mileage. (laughs) Um, So what about those that, you know, again, the only time you get in your car, maybe once a week to go to the store? Right. So, um so the pandemic, the state of emergency was declared mid-March. Um, I think it was around mid-April. Many insurance companies started offering, uh, you know, premium, auto insurance premium relief, just for what you said. You know, insurance companies' liability exposure has gone down, so they were offering some sort of credit or, uh, you know, premium reductions to uh, policyholders to offset that. Now, that again uh, worked, worked per insurance company. Um, in fact, insurancehotline.com, we got so many questions about, is my company offering any COVID-19 relief that we built a calculator and house it on the homepage of our website. So if, you know, you wanted to see what your company was offering, um, you know, go to our, go to our website and check and we can let you, you know, the calculator can let you know what you would have been eligible for through your insurance company. This is going to take a while for the industry, just like other industries, to catch up to all of this, isn't it? I mean, because everything is virtu- everything's virtually changed. So, you know, what you're gaining on car insurance, you might be losing on home insurance. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, things are in a bit of a state of flux right now. So there is... Uh, You know, there's no 100% for sure this is what's going to happen because they've never been through anything like this before. So this is all new for all of us. What advice do you have for those that are trying to negotiate all of this and get through it? What what should we do? So it it doesn't do you any harm at all to have a quick 10-minute conversation with your insurance professional. They have your policies. I mean, do, you know, get an insurance checkup. Do you have everything you need, you know, for your circumstances as they are now? And are you paying the lowest possible rate that you can for the circumstances that you are in now? What do you think the biggest changes are going to be to the insurance industry moving forward? Uh, I think a lot more is going to be done online. I think a lot more brokers are going to be, uh, you know, a lot of them do like electronic signatures and all those 
kinds of things now. But I think there's going to be so much more of that in terms of when you're doing business with your insurance broker, you may not have to go into their office anymore. You can do it all electronically. Uh, and in terms of policies and policy wordings, uh, those will all change. It was, you know, uh, insurance policies change and, in, and insurance exclusions and additions are created because some instance made it so. For example, before 9-11, there was no, there was no real terrorism exclusion yeah. in a homeowner policy. Who thought we needed one that big, right? So, but, and so after that, they, you know, they, uh, drafted all of that into the policies. So who knows what kinds of exclusions? I mean, I am imagining that COVID-19 on travel insurance, yeah. uh, COVID-19 exclusion is something that we could potentially see for quite some time under a travel insurance policy now. So as I say, it's, you know, instance, you know, occurrences make the insurance company take a look and decide what they need to do with their wordings and their coverages and, you know, their ways of doing business. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this all, all shapes out. And Marie, you bring up a valid point because uh, a lot of uh, uh, Canadians head down south for uh, the winter months. Obviously, we're heading into the fall. A lot of these people will leave in October, November, maybe come back for Christmas and then head back down. Um, I'm not sure there are any insurance companies right now that are offering travel insurance uh, to snowbirds. Where do you see that come even a couple of months from now? Yeah, so that that's great. Uh, it, it's definitely something to think about. A lot of it, some insurance companies are offering travel insurance, but you might not get uh, trip interruption. You might not get trip cancellation because, you know, if... if if yeah, you're still you can still get insured, but if there's anything related to COVID nineteen, then it becomes you, exempt. You I've heard. Be out of luck. But one thing that I would tell any listener who is planning on going anywhere, even out of Ontario, check for any travel advisories before you leave to go anywhere. Right? If the if the place you're going, do you need to self isolate for 14 days after you get there? That could be even interprovincially. You know, we started to it started to look great when all the provinces were opening their doors and we can travel between provinces. But a few of the provinces are starting to see spikes. So does that mean that you know there uh, there are going to be more restrictions and and requirements in terms of isolation? So check and and if you're flying out of the country. Uh, check for any travel advisory because if you book your ticket after a travel advisory is issued, you have you will likely have no coverage. Something to think about insurance as we move forward, whether it's traveling, whether it's working from home, whether it's getting a discount on your car because of COVID, uh, certainly another thing that needs to be examined as we wade through a COVID-19 pandemic. Anne-Marie Thomas has been with us, insurance expert, spokesperson with insurancehotline.com. Anne-Marie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Back at you. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.